we shall now turn to the chapter which we read together, John's Gospel, chapter 11, and we'll read again verses 43 and 44. John 11, 43, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Now we have three cases in the New Testament of those who were dead, whom Christ raised from the dead. There's Jairus' daughter, there's the widow of Nain's son, and here we have Lazarus. And Lazarus is the most wonderful of the three because he had been dead and buried. He had been dead for four days. In the case of the others, they were only dead a matter of minutes or hours. But Jesus will one day not just raise three people from the dead, but he'll raise everyone from the dead. And everyone who's ever lived will be raised. Those who have been dead thousands and thousands of years, whose bodies have turned into dust so that they're indistinguishable from the dust in which they were buried. And yet he will raise them. You will be raised and I will be raised and we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there we will have to render our account for our life spent in this world, for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or evil. There's a heaven and there's a hell and it's so important that you and I make sure that we go to heaven and not to hell. Well, first this morning, I would like you to notice that there's a call here for help. A call for help. The Jews had tried to stone Jesus. Jesus had said, I and my Father are one. And of course, he was telling us the truth there because there's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I and my Father are one. But the Jews regarded it as blasphemy and picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus slipped away from them. And then he and his disciples went away, away from Jerusalem, away from Judea, away across the Jordan to Transjordan. And there he was ministering for some time. But while he's there, a messenger comes and says to him, He whom thou lovest is sick. <coughs> An interesting message. Surely Jesus loves everyone. There's that children's hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But where exactly does the Bible tell us that Jesus loves everyone? 
Does Jesus actually love everyone? What kind of love does Jesus have? Does he love some people who he then sends to hell? Is the love of is the love of God not a love which is infinite and eternal and unchangeable? It goes on forever, doesn't it? And yet we can in a certain sense say that there's a love, a love of God to all men and women. It's not called that in the Bible, but rather providence, benevolence, a kindness of God to all. We see that especially in the passage that comes at the end of Matthew 5, where we're told there, love your enemies, and so be children of your Father in heaven. But he causes the sun to shine upon the righteous and the wicked. He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. God is good to all. Because God's good to all, we should be good to all too. And we should be kind to everyone. And we should have no enemies to whom we're not prepared to show kindness. So there's a, a kindness in that sense of God to all. But as far as the love of God is concerned. That love is restricted to his elect. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Because the love of God is so wonderful, so infinitely great, it cannot be measured, and it never ends. And those whom God loves, he loves forever. His infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love. He whom thou lovest is sick. But then what we have to remember is that Jesus is a man. He's God and man. And as a man, as God, he loves his own people, each one with an infinitely great love, <coughs> an immeasurably great love. So you can't say he loves this one more than that one because his love is infinite. It cannot be measured. But as a man, he is fully man. And as a man, he can't do anything infinite. He doesn't know infinitely. He doesn't love infinitely. His love is measured. And as a man... He loved some more than he loved others. Some were more lovely. Some were easier to love. And there was one person, and he loved him with a special love. It's interesting. When this message came to Jesus, he knew exactly who was being spoken about. He whom thou lovest is sick. There was that house in Bethany which was really special. Two very godly ladies lived there and a godly man. Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And Jesus loved to go there. He enjoyed staying there. And you remember for the last year of the last week of his life how he stayed there in Bethany. 
just under two miles from Jerusalem. He would preach in Jerusalem all day and minister, and then he would go out and he would sleep in Bethany in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He had a great love for them. They had a great love for him. They were really godly people. They were very hospitable and devout, wonderful ladies. Mary, especially so. She sat at the Lord's feet. Martha complained, you remember, how Mary wasn't helping her. And they had so many people in the house at that time. And she was trying to prepare a meal for all these disciples and Jesus and others. And it was hard work. She said, Master, do you not care that Mary is not helping me? And he said, Mary hath chosen the good part, which hath not be taken from her. The good part. There's nothing better than to sit at the feet of Jesus and to hear what he has to say. And it's amazing what she was taking in. Mary seems to have understood more than the disciples, the apostles. Because you remember what she did. Tells us about it in the next chapter. She anointed the Lord for his burial. The disciples were saying, oh, you're not going to die, Lord. Far be that from thee, Lord. But Mary was anointing Jesus for his burial. What a tremendous insight she had. She could see that now she had an opportunity to do this. And she wouldn't have it in the future. And so she anointed him a few days before it happened. With that very expensive perfume. Came all the way from India. Spikenard. And she poured it all upon him. In an act of great devotion. Well, here we have a call for help. Their brother Lazarus is seriously ill. He whom thou lovest is sick. Well, that's interesting too, isn't it? You love him. He's a special Christian. And yet he's sick. So the fact that you're sick doesn't, doesn't mean that you're somebody bad that the Lord doesn't love. He whom thou lovest is sick. And sometimes those whom God loves most are the ones who are most sick. Because... God puts his own children through the fires in order to purify them and strengthen them and prepare them for heaven. These afflictions have a purpose. God knows what he's doing. And whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receiveth. So there's a cry here for help. And where do we go when we're in trouble? When we have need? Cry to the Lord. This poor man cried, God heard and saved him from all his distresses. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer thee and thou shalt glorify me. So I call for help. But then next we notice a calculated delay. Jesus gets the call for help and then he waits two days. Why? Surely he's going to come right away. 
And you and I, when we pray for help, we expect the answer immediately. But sometimes the Lord, for his own reasons and for our good, says, wait. Sometimes we have to wait two days. And maybe sometimes we have to wait years. But the Lord always answers prayer in the best way. A calculated delay. He waited two days more. Now, it would have taken the messenger going from Bethany across Jordan, it would have taken him a day's journey on foot. And then you've got a two-day wait, and then Jesus and his disciples go to Bethany. That would take another day. So there we have the four days. And you remember how Martha said, he's already been dead four days. So there's the four days. So he must have died shortly after the messenger left to go to Jesus. <clears throat> he waits. Why? Well, Jesus knew what he was doing. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. This sickness is not to death, and yet he did die. But it wasn't permanent death. It was only dead for a little while, or for a few days. This sickness was to glorify God. If Jesus had healed him immediately, then it wouldn't have been such a great miracle, would it? It was a great miracle, all these different people that he healed, giving the blind their sight, and lepers cleansed of leprosy, and all kinds of illnesses healed. And yet, to raise somebody from the dead, especially after four days, is surely an even more powerful miracle. It was to be to the glory of God. It was to be for the strengthening of the faith of the disciples. It was to be as a great witness to the people around. There was to be much teaching for everyone. So Jesus waits. And then after two days he says, Lazarus is asleep, but I go to waken him. And the disciple says, well, if he's sleeping, that's better. Somebody is very ill and they sleep, they get rest. And often after a sleep, a person is very much better. Why are you going to waken him? It's good to sleep. And then Jesus said, Lazarus is dead. But I go to raise him. And then the disciples say, But Jesus, we had to leave Judea because the Jews sought to kill you. Are you going to go there into the lion's den again to get killed? Surely not. The Jews attempted to kill you. And Jesus says, yes, but we must work while it is yet today. And then it's interesting to notice that Thomas speaks up. <coughs> Thomas, <coughs> and people are often hard on Thomas, doubting Thomas. But here he speaks up and he says, 
Let's go with him. Let's die with him. Thomas takes the leadership. Now that's a little bit surprising. Why is it not Peter that's taking the leadership? Peter always seems to take the leadership. But then, perhaps Peter wasn't there. It seems very likely that he wasn't. You've got to remember that Peter was a married man. Maybe he had things to do. Maybe he had things to do back in, in Galilee. He was a married man. He had a family there back home. Maybe he had duties to perform. And another interesting point is that there's no mention. There's no mention in Mark's gospel of the raising of Lazarus. <clears throat> Mark's gospel, tradition tells us, was written by Mark under the uh, direction of Peter. Peter given the information. And Mark wrote it. And the other two synoptic gospels, as they're called, Matthew and Luke, draw heavily upon Mark's gospel. There's a lot of similar material <coughs> in these three gospels. So Peter very likely wasn't present at the raising of Lazarus. He doesn't feature in the story at all. And so we find here that um, <coughs> Thomas takes the leadership. A calculated delay, wait for two days. But then next we notice a rebuke to the Lord. It's interesting that when Martha, both Martha and Mary, come to Jesus, they use exactly the same words. If you had been here, Lord, our brother wouldn't have died. Why did you not come? Why did you delay to come? There's a rebuke there, isn't there? There's a complaint. A complaint addressed to Jesus. Why did you not come? We called you. Why the delay? Do you not care? We thought you loved us. Why are you so slow in coming to help? Do you sometimes rebuke the Lord? Why, Lord? Why did you not answer my prayer? Why did this sickness come? Why did that accident take place? Why did that disaster strike me? Why this awkward situation? Lord, do you care? Where are you, Lord? Where's the answer? You and I so often are sinful, aren't we? Unbelieving, untrusting, criticizing and condemning our Lord. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. The delay was not because of a lack of love. It's important to remember that. And God loves you, his child. God loves you who trust in him. And if he delays, it's because he loves you and because he cares and because he's got a purpose in it all. 
So there's a rebuke here. But we've got to remember that it's always the best that God does. All things work together for good. And so next we notice a call to faith. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus says there, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? Do you believe that your brother will rise again? There in verse 26, there's a sense in which no Christian dies. He that believeth in me shall never die. The Christian doesn't die as the unbeliever dies. The Christian is translated to heaven, closes their eyes on this world and opens them in paradise. Death, yes, it's spoken of as the last enemy. But in another sense, it's not an enemy at all. It's a friend. It's like the angels coming to take us to heaven. It's like a mother kissing her child to waken up her little baby. The Lord kisses us and all our troubles are gone. All our fears are gone. All our pains are gone. All our sufferings are behind us and all our sins are gone forever. We've been kissed and we awake, awake in the arms of Jesus. A call to faith. Do you believe, Martha? Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you're the Savior, the promised one, the one who's come into this world to seek and to save the lost. And then she goes for Mary. And she says to Mary, the master is come and calleth for thee. I never read these words, but I think of a a lovely old elder that I had in my portree congregation. He was converted through these words. Reading them for his mother, her father was out. Reading them at family worship, he himself under conviction of sin. Concern of soul. The master is come and calleth for thee. How true. His calls for you too. Have you come to him? Have you received him? Have you welcomed him in faith, in trust, in love? The master is come and calleth for thee. And Mary come, comes immediately. And falls down before Jesus, using the same words as Martha, If thou had been here, my brother had not died. And yet, you can see, although there's this kind of 
troubled, complaining to Jesus. At the same time, there's dependence and trust. I don't understand, and yet I believe. Is that the way it is with you? I don't know why I'm going through this, but Lord, I trust. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I trust. Help me, Lord. Strengthen me to overcome unbelief. And then next we notice a weeping Savior. Verse 33, we're told that he, he groaned in his spirit. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 38, Jesus again groaning. Why did Jesus groan? Why did he weep? Well, no doubt there was a sympathy with the others who were weeping. There's Mary weeping, and the Jews weeping, and Martha weeping. We're told to rejoice with those that do rejoice, and weep with those that weep. And our Saviour had great sympathy, great love, great kindness, great softness and sweetness towards us. He wept with those that wept. So there's sympathy there. But there's also a groaning at the misery that sin has brought into the world. What a beautiful place the Garden of Eden was. How wonderful it was to be there where there was no pain, no suffering, no death, no illness, no sin. Everything was so beautiful. And God came and walked in the garden with them in the cool of the day. Fellowship with God, love and beauty. And then, sin and misery. And all the misery that's in this world came because of sin. You know, atheists and unbelievers, they sometimes say, <clears throat> Why is there sin? Why is there pain in the world? Why is there suffering? Why is there death? Why do babies die? They ask this question. As if it was something wrong with God that these things happened. Why is there suffering in the world? Because there's sin in the world. And God demands where there's sin that there's suffering. Sin brings misery. If there was no sin, there'd be no misery. And even little babies are sinners. We're all sinners. Born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And sin brings misery. Jesus groaned seeing the misery that sin <coughs> brought into the world. And Jesus also wept, showing the love that he had for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, displaying his love. But then <clears throat> we notice the word, therefore, in verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself. 
Could not this man, they were saying, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? They seemed to think that Jesus could could keep somebody from dying, but, well, that was the end of it. He couldn't do anything more. They were limiting the power of God. And Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave, seeing their unbelief, their failure to recognize the purpose of God and thinking that Jesus was unable to raise the dead. So finally we see here a glorified Saviour. There was purpose in all that happened. Nothing happens by chance. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. And this death, the death of Lazarus, was for the glory of God, just as every other death is, but especially in this case, it's to be clearly illustrated. But how can this death glorify God? Surely God is infinitely glorious. How can you add to his glory? You can't. You can't glorify him in the sense of adding to his glory. So how is God glorified? God is glorified by manifesting his glory, revealing it. And God is glorified by you and me in responding to his glory, in praising and worshipping the glorious God, seeing his glory and praising it for it. So Jesus asks, where was he buried? And they come to the grave, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And then Martha intervenes. She had said earlier, Lord, even now I know whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. But faith is a strange thing. It comes and it goes. One moment you have faith, the next moment doubt. One moment you could say, I know you could raise Lazarus from the dead. And then the next moment you say, Lord, don't, don't open the grave. There'll be a stink come out of it. And that would be horrible. Think of Abraham, how he loved Sarah. And yet he couldn't keep the body. Bury my dead out of my sight. There's something horrible as time passes with a dead body decomposing so Martha's very concerned she says Lord by this time he stinketh for he's been dead four days and Jesus said said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe thou should see the glory of God and they took away the stone from the place where he was laid Jesus lifted up his eyes and said Father I thank thee that thou hast heard me why does he say that I thank thee that thou hast heard me. You've heard me already. Well, there's no mention, is there, of a stink? Already, his prayer was being answered. The body of Lazarus was being preserved in the grave. They took away the stone, 
Father, I thank thee. I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people that stand by, I said it, <coughs> that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Remember as a student, and a fellow student saying to me once how he'd heard his minister preaching on these words and the minister said, why did he say Lazarus? Well, if he just said, come forth, everybody who was dead would rise from the dead. Jesus is so powerful. So he said, Lazarus, come forth. And only Lazarus came out of the grave. Our Lord is the resurrection and the life. He is powerful. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came stumbling out of the grave, bound with grave clothes, his face bound about with a napkin. Jesus said, Loose him and let him go. And many of the Jews which came with Jesus believed on him. They saw that mighty miracle and believed, but not all. There were also many there who didn't believe. And they went to tell the Jews. And you know the Jews, they didn't deny that Jesus rose from the dead. That, Je that Lazarus rose from the dead. Rather, they said, let's kill Lazarus too. This man's performing too many miracles. We've got to get rid of him and we've got to get rid of Lazarus. The evidence. You see, even though one rose from the dead, they will not believe. It's amazing how, how rebellious man is, how hardened he is in his unbelief. Even seeing a miracle like that, they still won't believe. Miracles will convert no one. So how can people be converted? Only by a mighty act of God. Raising the dead. But in this case, raising somebody who's spiritually dead. Because the spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, even although they saw the mightiest miracle, wouldn't be converted. We need the regenerating grace of God. You must be born again. Born from above. The Spirit bloweth where it listeth. You hear the sound thereof, the wind cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The mighty work of God. So we have here a glorified Saviour. Glorious. And yet they crucify him. Man in rebellion against his maker. A wicked rejection of Christ. So where are we today then? Are we those that trust in Christ, commit our lives to Christ, rest in his promises, pray to him for everything we need, wait upon him for the time when he will come and answer our prayers? Are we, are we those who are grumbling, complaining, unbelieving, doubting, or even rejecting? There's a call here 
to trust. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee that we have a mighty Saviour. We thank thee that Jesus is God and man, two distinct natures and one person forever. We thank thee, Lord, for all the evidences. We thank thee for the way that the Spirit testified to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the way the Father worked through the Spirit in the life of Jesus. We bless thee, O Lord, for these mighty miracles that he performed. We praise thee that Lazarus was raised from the dead. We pray, O Lord, that we would see thy power at work in our own day. We grieve when we see people dead in their trespasses and sins, going on rejecting the gospel, rejecting the wonderful glad tidings of great joy, rejecting even signs and wonders because there's that rebellion in the human heart, that love for darkness rather than light. O oh Lord, our God, we pray that thou wouldst work in the hearts of men and women, bringing them to repentance. Bless us then, each one, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Our closing praise is Psalm 118, and we'll sing verses 15 to 19. <coughs> Psalm 118, at verse 15, In dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody of joy and health. The Lord's right hand doth ever valiantly. The right hand of the mighty Lord exalted is on high. The right hand of the mighty Lord doth ever valiantly. I shall not die, but live, and shall the works of God discover. Verses 15 to 19. In dwellings of the
intimations, the evening service, as usual, at 6.30 p.m. The services next Sabbath at the usual times, 11 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. And we could have a congregational fellowship after the evening service next Sabbath, God willing. Prayer meeting on Thursday at the usual time, 7.30 p.m. All God willing. <clears throat> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit rest upon and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.